Thank you all very much. I have to give you great credit for being here, but I do believe that we have saved the best for last. Any of you interested in the Arab world knows that these are the top, uh, two of the top reporters uh, in the Arab world, and their insights are extremely important for anyone trying to understand and comprehend the Middle East. For those of you who are Muslim who are still with us, I wish you a Eid Mubarak uh, uh, for Eid al-Adha. This is a very important day for all of you, and I hope that you'll have time this evening to celebrate with your family and friends. Um, I've had the distinct honor of working with Jamal. We were at, <laughs> at Arab News together. Jamal was the deputy editor-in-chief. And uh, we've had a long friendship that I am very proud of. I'm looking forward to uh, Jamal speaking about how his new TV broadcast of news is going to be coming out soon, and uh, how El Arab is going to differ from El Arabiya, El Jazeera, and MBC. Easy question to answer, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and Nadia is someone that I'm particularly uh, fond of and very, very proud of. As an American journalist who has been working for the Arab media here in Washington, D.C., I can tell you that it's no easy task. But Nadia has really broken the, the glass ceiling as an Arab woman. And uh, she has, uh, you will hear her on Diane Rehm, she has been quoted throughout the United States. She's done an excellent job on her reporting. And she has just returned from Turkey where she was uh, interviewing a lot of the Syrian um, uh, of, of the activists there. So I know she's going to have really some great comments to give us about all of this. Uh, we, as the two ladies spoke, Jamal, while you weren't here, we decided that we would let you speak first. Since you are the minority for, for, the minority. for a change. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very much. This has to be really good that you stayed behind in, yes. in a Friday afternoon and Eid al-Adha. So I have to say something useful. <laughs> Right. Uh, should the media or does the media affect U.S.-Arab relationship? Of course it does. I'm sure it will. And I have two examples for that. In the previous session, Dr. Abdul Khalik Saeed, he's not here so I can speak freely, he ruled out that there will be any bombs in the relations between GCC countries and, uh, and the U.S. I doubt that particularly after the Arab Spring, something bound to happen. Uh, I see it happening in the UK today, and the media played a role at that. How it will start, the Post or the New York Times, Wall Street Journal and others will start talking more and more about reforming the GCC, about political prisoners, human rights, somehow that it will find its way to a Congress staffer, then to a congressman, then to some uh, committee at the Congress. And that will make us or make some uh, GCC country upset and angry because we, thought, we, we always think that we deserve better from the American government. But uh, things are changing. And uh, something interesting is happening that in the past uh, with an American journalist comes to Saudi Arabia or goes to UAE, he, he has only a number of addresses to contact, usually government or close to governments. Now, there are other voices. In the past, uh, other voices were anonymous. Nowadays, they are not anonymous anymore. They have an identity. They, are, they have a character. They, uh, some of them 
come out of prison, so they have a better story to tell. So this is the kind of bombs I see uh, in the road, and I think Arab embassies should be vigilant. Uh, maybe, the, our, maybe our better uh, choice is not to have political prisoners prisoner at all, so there will not be a story to tell. In the other side, also Arab media, in, the, in, 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 in light of the new environment of freedom, they are going really loose without uh, uh, regulations. So they commit mistakes. They will affect the relationship. I have two stories there. Uh, the story of a, a, a liberal uh, news channel in Egypt, the owner of the channel, during the visit of uh, Mrs. Clinton to Egypt, her first visit after the election of Mercy, he called really, literally on the people of Egypt to come out on the street and go uh, in the front of the Four Seasons Hotel, uh, bring with them tomatoes and eggs, and throw it on uh, Mrs. Clinton's car. And they did that. He, 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 he was literally inciting people. And uh, of course, Mrs. Clinton said she did not notice uh, any of that, and uh, probably she was right, because I'm sure she did not go from the uh, main door. Uh, but it, this is the kind of a media we could anticipate in, in, in a loose environment. Uh, that could, did not affect the relations between the states and uh, the new government of Egypt. But another conservative or a Salafi news channel called Anas did some damage when they uh, released the f uh, that infamous film, uh, in a sense of a Muslim, and they broadcast it or broadcast part of it on Al-Nas TV and brought attention to it. And many people argue that that was the trigger that started the, the, the demonstrations and the upheaval which led to uh, the, 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 the Benghazi incidents and the killing of other people throughout the Muslim world, that famous week around uh, last 9-11. Uh, it, it, it was the work of a TV station, or some reporters assumed so, and they began to ask and investigate about that particular TV station. So obviously, uh, media can affect relationship a bit, uh, and, uh, but in the same time, it, uh, it does require some uh, code of ethics, some regulations. Uh, the Egyptian government is, uh, has shut down the first TV sta station uh, because it threatened the president. Uh, and there's a, there's a law case against the other TV station. And we're going to see more of that because as uh, e Egyptians uh, try their own free environment uh, government, they need also to practice some uh, of that at the courts in order to, de to develop uh, a restraint system or a bitter system or, or a countable system. Uh, there has been a time when former President Bush made a complaint to the Egyptian government about Egyptian media uh, incitement. The Israelis also did a number of that. But this will not happen again. Uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense, really, uh, considering uh, the, the, the atmosphere of after the Arab Spring. Uh, one day there will not even be uh, a minister of information in Tunisia or in Egypt to complain to. Uh, media will be really free. I remember a story 
Prince Turki, when he was uh, the ambassador in the UK, used to tell all the time uh, in, in, in audiences he would, uh, that he received a phone call from his uh, superiors asking him why the British media uh, is so uh, anti the Saudi royal family and anti the Saudi government. And he told his superior, I will check on that and come back to you. So, so he, uh, after two months, the prince continued with the story that uh, he sent his superior the following uh, uh, facts or telegram that you are right, your highness, that the British media is really nasty toward the royal family of Saudi Arabia and the government of Saudi Arabia, but you should, you should see how nasty they are to their own royal family and their own government. <laughs> so I can imagine something like that. The, 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 the future minister of information would say to either the Americans or to the Saudi minister of information when he passed a complaint uh, about the, the, what is the media is doing nowadays in, in, in those free countries. Uh, the, I, I will come briefly to Al-Arab News Channel, uh, the channels I'm trying to set up in order, uh, but I will talk generally about the changing environment totally in, the, in, 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 in news television in, in the Arab world. While all of you are acquainted with uh, the changing environment happening now in America, in the West, this traditional debate about uh, new media versus or advance, ad advancing against uh, traditional media, we all know about that. Uh, but we are facing that in the Arab world. I'm, I'm, I'm facing that in, uh, while I'm sitting our Arab news channel. But there is also a changing ground or a changing regulations, changing environment totally in the Arab world, which uh, is unique to us. Uh, the, the, the first thing I, I, I began to witness, and I feel it is, it is happening, that the old concept of pan-Arabianism is diminishing. Localism is the king today. In Egypt, uh, after the revolution, there's about 30 new channels. Eventually, they will uh, come down to about 10 who will, who will survive. Uh, because usually advertising agencies, they will just take the top 10 and forget about the rest. So the, the other 20 will just fizzle away. Uh, so while we are working, I'm sure our colleague in Arabia in Al Jazeera, they begin to witness uh, those changes that uh, uh, it is not Al Arabiya or Al Jazeera are not doing a proper job. They are doing a proper job, but God created uh, only four hours of prime time. And everybody fights for, those, for this prime time. And uh, an Egyptian, when he goes home, he now has the option of three, four, five, six various uh, talk shows or news channels, or not news channels, talk shows usually. There hasn't been any yet a news channel in Egypt uh, totally devoted to news, uh, to news. Uh, and Al Arabiya and Al Jazeera. In the past, he would go to Al Jazeera if he's, if, if he's a news junkie, if he's, if he's into news, but not anymore. He has alternatives. The same thing with the Libyan, the same thing with the Tunisians. And there is no way Al Arabiya or Al Arab in the future can devote half an hour to a local issue in Tunisia or in, uh, or in Libya, while a local Libyan news channel will do that. So I have to consider that. Uh, I think eventually I will favor a concept of some uh, local or, 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 or a region 
I want to be strong in. And my favorite region is Saudi Arabia, not because I'm Saudi Arabian and the owner of the channel is Saudi Arabians, but really Saudi Arabia is the largest uh, economy in, uh, in, in, in the MENA region, uh, particularly in advertising. So I should go to that market, and that market really needs an, uh, a different style news channel. That's why we teamed up with Bloomberg to do uh, four, six hours every day of, 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 of business. And business is picking up in uh, our, our, uh, news business. It is a great interest. And I think that will also introduce us into, if I will go to Egypt uh, with some certain Egyptian programming or North Africa, I will go through uh, business because that's what interests the people right now. Finally, I, uh, I, since I feel there's a need for more cooperation between Arab media uh, and various American organizations, government, private sectors, institute, colleges, to, uh, to organize programs for uh, training, journalists, media. There's a great demand for talented uh, people, talented young qualified journalists. So there's a room for that. And uh, I, in, in previous sessions, I had an interest in, uh, from various American uh, groups about uh, this sort of cooperation. Media should be uh, uh, a target or uh, an address for this kind of cooperation because there is a great, a great demand, a great need for it. There is plenty of candidates. Uh, uh, right now, I'm recruiting new candidates for Al Arab News Channel. I have no problems in getting tons of CVs, but qualified ones are few. And that's uh, an area where I'm, uh, I'm sure American uh, organization can help us, particularly that the restrictions of the past has been lifted. And I'm sure one of those organizations, colleges will be welcomed to team up with the uh, Arab media organization or local colleges in, uh, in the Arab world. Thank you very much. I will end here. So. I don't know if you can see me. I cannot uh, match Jamal's length, but I hope you can see me. <clears throat> thank you, Barbara, and thank you, Dr. Anthony. Thank you all for staying uh, on a Friday night and on Eid, for those who are celebrating uh, Eid Mubarak to all of you. Um, yes, for, for the first time, I think we see two women on the panel. Normally, I'm the minority, and um, I always say from uh, an Arab woman perspective, I always say I don't believe actually men and women are equal. I believe we are superior. <laughs> <clears throat> the stuff that we do, the multitasking, running the house and coming to the office and looking good if you work for television, trust me, it's a hard job. Um, I was here, I think, two years ago. I thought it was last year, but now Dr. Andrew said we didn't have this panel um, except, for, I think, two years ago. And uh, I was asked to talk about um, the, the Arab view vis-a-vis -vis U.S. foreign policy. And at the time, I said two issues, two factors that remain uh, important today as well. One is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is the heart of the matter, really. And second is uh, the U.S. support for authoritarian, one-party rule, repressive regimes in the Arab world. Now, uh, since uh, the end of uh, 2010, we have witnessed something that I honestly 
thought it would never happen in my lifetime, which is the Arab Spring. And for all those people who doubt the eventual result, I'm very hopeful, and I believe that what we see now, despite everything, it will be for the better, because generations of young Arabs, uh, women, young men, only remember one president for 40 years. And this president, even when he was about to leave, he thinks that his son is entitled to take over. So um, what happened in the, other, in the Arab world is vital for, um, for us to be back again to where we used to be. You know, I always try to remind my son of his Arab heritage, and he will look at me and he says, what did you do? What, what, what did you contribute, contribute to the world? And I will say, well, look at algebra. You know, without us, you know, you guys cannot use the zero. And he goes like, how many thousand years ago was that? Mm -hmm. And it's true. So my hope and my belief that we will have a better Arab world. And I bet on the women, and I bet on the young people, because definitely they're going to be the, the standard barrier of the change in the Arab world. We cannot talk about change without talking about the media. The media is vital. It's the fourth authority. <clears throat> it's the, the power that keeps check and balances. Yesterday, somebody actually, I read something on Facebook talking about the social media and the importance of the social media. I know Jamal wants to establish a new kind of station, but we, we all have to compete with the social media now, with the Twitters, with the Facebook, with, uh, with all kinds of ways that young people are um, trying to get the message across. And this person was quoting President Jefferson, who said, um, if I have to choose between a government and a newspaper, I will have a newspaper without a government. And that's a testimony to the power of the media. Um, the, Arab, the media in the Arab world has changed tremendously. And let me be candid, because I don't think we can really try to advance without having a, a candid conversation that we can talk about what we need, uh, what we had to go through, so we can reach to where we wanted to go. Uh, for decades, we had a government-controlled media in any Arab-given country, just name them. We have to report on the king and the president, that he opened a mosque here, he did, a, I don't know, a school in a village there, he did a little project there, etc., ignoring the bigger story. And people now, maybe that was in the 90s, people now find a ways to find out what's happening. So they're not going to wait for me to report on NBC or somebody on Arabia or Al Jazeera. They actually can go to, to, to Google, they can go to Twitter, they can go to all kind of information that's available to them. So the world has changed. It's no longer the Cold War, you know, when the, the United States wanted to set up Voice of America and, and Radio Free Europe, which is, did vital service. But now information is abundance. It's everywhere. And sometimes with that responsibility, we see so many um, news items that's been put in the, in the news sphere, and uh, nobody can check them. could be wrong. And the, the last example I think we have seen in Lebanon, where it almost could have set up a Sunni Shiat uh, war over this story that was not credible. But I think we have moved from that, and that's thanks to what they call the pan-Arab news media, Al Jazeera, in the beginning, that opened the way, uh, paved the way for the first time ever to have some kind of credible news in terms of having another, an alternative point of view. It's not just a government, it's not just your prime minister, but somebody from the opposition can come and speak. And that's healthy, this is encouraging, it's very important to listen to all kind of diverse point of view. So if you wanted to learn from the West, the first thing you want to talk about is a free media cannot exist in a repressive society. It has to be existing in an open 
society. And this is, by the way, the United States has the, probably the most relaxed rules when it comes to the media in comparison to Western Europe and other democracies. And I give you an example. <clears throat> All of you has followed this movie that has caused so much trouble and turmoil. And uh, people will, will ask us, well, how come the U.S. government cannot stop this stupid movie? I'm sure with all this powerful intelligence and, you know, the president must know about it. Well, maybe he knows about it or maybe somebody else knows about it, but he cannot stop it. Because it's the first amendment of the U.S. Constitution is to guarantee the freedom of expression. And this freedom of expression can be hateful, can be terrible. They can say the most abhorrent things about people, but yet in a free society you're allowed to tell people what they, have to, uh, what they don't like to say and sometimes something even disgusting as that movie was. But that's not where the stage we're going to reach soon in the, Arab, in the Arab media because it's going to take a while. What I'm saying now is we are on the right direction. We have new um, television stations. I came from the print media and I still have much more respect for the print media because I think you have more um, uh, space to analyze things and to write things. The television is very superficial to a certain extent. So you have to reduce a very complex story to a sound bite or two and a half minutes. But nevertheless, it's good. What we have seen now is not bad at all. But this is what we, were, we wanted to reach? Absolutely not. The most important thing about the media and television is money. Most of you know that funding is very important, and they always say follow the money in so many things, and I'll say it the same in the Arab media. Is where the money comes from is dictate the policies of stations. And the, the worst thing for all of us, and we all know that, and again, I'm going to be candid about it, is censorship. Censorship I experienced as a, as a young Palestinian journalist working with the French news agency. We have to hand over things to the Israeli military. And, since, and censorship we have with all the stations that we work, without any exception, because it's called self-censorship, because you know where the station stands and there are certain things you say and certain things you cannot say. What I'm inspiring to have is one day that we have, will be free of any kind of, of, dictator, of, of, of dictating to us what, we can be, what can be said and what cannot be said. But journalism comes with responsibility. We have to um, um, kind of uh, generate or create um, a, a generation of young journalists who understand the value of the news and understand how responsible you are with the piece of news. In a Western democracy, you can bring down a government. And we know that in the United States, with Watergate, with, you know, during the Nixon administration, we can see it all over Western Europe, with one reporter can actually bring a government down. So this is why you have to be um, very sure about what you're saying. You have to double-check your sources. You have to be objective. We tend to be emotional. And I, I am, by nature, I'm an emotional person. I, I just, Barbara said, I just came back from Syria, I mean from uh, Turkey, where I was talking to Syrian uh, activists. And I think it's a shame on all the world um, um, conscious that we're not doing anything. We have a moral obligation to stand up to the thousands of people who die in every day. There's policies in the way, and uh, people don't want to do anything. Maybe many waiting for after the election. That's a different story, and maybe not this panel that we talk about uh, U.S. foreign policy. But in general, your first loyalty and it should be to your profession. Despite how, how horrible is, the, is the, the story in front of you and how painful is it to cover, try to stay objective. This is very, very important. Trying to make sure that the news you put on air is, 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 is true. 
And I think this is the, uh, the, uh, the trap that the Arab media is falling into now. As much as they decided to, um, to take the side of the, of the Syrian people, but certain times you can see news that's not real. And also, if we want to talk about objectivity, we have to cover all the Arab countries. If there is a suffering in one country, it should be equal to the other one. Maybe it's not the same number. Maybe we see 10 people dying in one country and 100,000 dying in another country or 10,000. It doesn't make it any lesser. What I'm saying is that we have to be really objective in our coverage. For me, it's always a tough challenge. And you're always as good. I always say, I've been a reporter for 25 years now. And I always say, you are good as your last story. That when you do a story, you have to be careful about what you say because you have a huge responsibility. I mean, in our station, we have 50 million people watching. I don't know if, if all of them watching news, but at least I know that in, in terms of Al Jazeera, Al Arabiya, NBC, Al Arab probably, uh, all these news stations have huge followers. And they have big responsibilities. How do they shape up the Arab world in ultimately? But it's not also, we have a mission, and we have a moral mission, and we have a professional mission before anything else. But we're not policymakers. We're not there to serve anybody's interests to decide how the world should go forward. I'll leave it to that, and I'm sure uh, we have so many um, points to take uh, during the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, Nadia. I appreciate that. Jamal, I'd like, to, um, I'd like you to talk about the effect of the social media in Saudi Arabia. And uh, on uh, Sunday in the New York Times, there was an article about Twitter and how Saudi civilians, including judges, are uh, tweeting, using their names, and they are very critical of the royal family and the Saudi government. In the article, they said that there are so many millions of people tweeting in Saudi Arabia that the government's throwing up their hands. They can't control it. Right. I think uh, Twitter is becoming the newspaper that we never had in Saudi Arabia. It is really, uh, it, is, it is having an effect. And we haven't seen yet all of it yet. I mean, what could Twitter, what could the Facebook do to, uh, to, to, to affect change and reform in Saudi Arabia? God only knows, but it began to happen. I, I used to say, uh, if, if one spend a couple of days with Twitter, he will feel as if a revolution is going to happen in Saudi Arabia tomorrow. It's not true, but you will, feel, you will get that feeling. And the, New York, uh, and, and the New York Times used that in their headline, the, the uh, Twitter revolution in Saudi Arabia or something like that. Uh, today, something interesting happened in Twitter and the Saudis. Hajj is, you know, Hajj is taking place right now. The Saudi government uh, introduced a monotrain to transport Hajjis from uh, one location to another. Uh, yesterday, uh, this monotrain works only for four or five days throughout the year. So it should, we expect it to be ready and fit when it is time for it to be used during the Hajj time. So the Hajjis were using the monotrain uh, yesterday, and uh, it stopped uh, for four, four hours. It was tweeted by a ton of people with pictures, details, uh, crowdness. Uh, at the beginning, officials tried to deny that. 
But of course, they couldn't because pictures and eyewitness accounts are, were, were a proof. Just before I come to the podium, I was checking my uh, Twitter account. I, 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 I'm, I'm very much into this habit now, right now. And uh, I, I got the news that the governor of Mecca ordered a thorough investigation and uh, he promised that he will punish whoever, whoever is responsible for uh, the, 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 the stopping or the, not the delay. It, it was, the, the train was stopped for about four hours. That shows how important Twitter is. But now we are talking about a money train. God knows where it will take us. Not the money train, the Twitter. Nadia, before we came up on the podium, we were talking about the differences in reporting, uh, the Bush administration and the Obama administration. And uh, I said, oh my gosh, I thought it was only me. And you said, no, no, it's me too. As a matter of fact, it's the New York Times as well. Would you please elaborate? Sure. Well, I've been covering the White House since 2003. And during the Bush administration, I came almost in the height of the Iraq war. So the administration has a, um, an interest as well to reach the Arab media, for sure. Uh, I'm not naive. But in general, it was as a, as a reporter, as a foreign reporter, I found a much better cooperation from the Bush administration than from the Obama administration, which is really strange because you thought the Obama administration ran on the platform transparency, more open, wanted to reach out. I was actually with the President Obama in Cairo in 2009 when he gave that famous speech to the Arab world talking about new beginning. Everybody was like very impressed with what he had to say. Um, and as a reporter, I found it extremely frustrating trying to get my phone returned, uh, my phone call returned, trying to get an email answered. Uh, it's very hard and it's been a battle, you know, ever since. We actually formed a group of foreign reporters who were covering the White House on a daily basis, trying to get some kind of attention from the administration, but it's, it's, it's very tough. So, um, and now especially, you know, the president and the staff is on the campaign trail, so it's going to be very hard until after the election. That was the case for a while. Um, I don't know. I mean, I can't really explain it why, um, because it contradicted everything that we, we hoped that it would have happened, that we have more access, but that was not the case. And I think that was very confusing when the first thing that President Obama did was to go to Egypt. Mm -hmm. And so the, uh, the Arab media was expecting that they would have better access to him. Uh, I have a question here for both of you, if you choose to answer it. How does American media bias affect Middle East media? media? Well, it depends on who you're talking about. I mean, if you're talking about Fox News reporting or the New York Times, there's a huge difference, you know. Um, I mean, it is, as I always say, you know, my aspiration is to find really the, the ultimate um, objective Arab um, outlet. But when you, when you live here in the United States, um, you'll be frustrated just to watch the daily news. As I say, if you watch across the all broadcast medium, which is ABC, NBC, Fox, and CNN, um, there was, before the Arab Spring, of, of course, it was the stereotype, you know, anything to do with 9-11 or anything to do with, with terrorism cases is always, you know, guilty before you prove innocence, people judge, uh, rush to judgment, etc. Um, the, the, the reporting is, is, not, is really not in-depth. 
um, they have lesser and lesser people, and that's because of the problem the print media is facing, which is the original foreign correspondent. When they send somebody to the region, they've been living there, they know what's happening, and they come back with, with the real story. Now they take it from the agencies. Sometimes they ignore the story altogether. Of course, with the Arab Spring happening, there was the, the region became back into focus, especially with, with Egypt, because that was the beginning of the revolution, and there was access for journalists. Syria is a different story because now we are reduced to use YouTubes and uh, other uh, format of really bad quality um, television, but it's vital for the outside world to know what's happening from inside Syria. Um, so it is, uh, I mean, it, as I said, it depends. I mean, you can still read fantastic stories in the print media like the New York Times, um, and you see terrible reporting on uh, stations like Fox News. Let, let me answer from my perspective from the Arab side. How would uh, Arab media uh, affect or, or, or handle America's matter or American government matters in Arab media? I suspect, I feel that uh, America will enjoy in the future or maybe it already to enjoy a better positioning than it used to be before. Why is that after the Arab Spring? Number one, because the, uh, the Palestinian question, the Palestinian issue, is stemming back. It is not uh, in, in, in the front pages in the Arab press as it used to be before. And that was the, the, the touching point between Arabs and the American uh, administration, usually because of Americans' support to Israel. But since it is stemming back and other issues are stemming forward, so I will see less criticism of American administration in the Arab media. Uh, President Obama's position uh, or, or, or open support to Arab Spring also helped the, the, the American administration positioning in the Arab media. It is, th that position of Obama is being appreciated by the Arabs. Uh, something interesting, the, that famous picture of burning American flags are being replaced by burning Russian flags now. And you could see that, in, particularly in, in Syria. Sometimes we also burn uh, Chinese flags. And that is probably un unheard of. But that's what the Syrians are doing right now. Iranians, uh, America, uh, Iranians Russians, and uh, Chinese flags are being, are, are being burned regularly in the front of cameras in Syria. Also, the governments and the people are aware that we need American support in our uh, rise, renaissance, in our, uh, uh, like, hoping for some Marshall Plan to come and support countries like Egypt or future Syria or, 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 or Libya. So uh, I, I predict there will be uh, less criticism of American uh, government administration in the Arab media after the Arab Spring. Thank you. Uh, I, I, can, uh, I can add something just sure, quickly. I think there is a great disappointment in Syria, for example, that the United States is not taking a leadership role. Uh, if you talk to many people there, they really believe that, you know, I mean, even in Libya with the president, um, the leadership from, you know, leading from behind, 
Um, I don't know. I might actually disagree on that. I definitely believe that, and I agree with you, that the U.S. has to be involved, and it has to, it's a vital player in the Middle East, and it has to be there, and it has to lead. It's not just can take a secondary role. But just, I was just looking actually at something else, which is the Pew Global Research, and they, they did this, uh, this polling about uh, American stand in the Middle East, and President Obama scored worse than President Bush, believe it or not. I mean, in comparison to, to 2009, the approval of international policies dropped from 34 to 15, from the favorable rating of the U.S. 25 to 15, and confidence in President Obama from 33 to 24, and this is the, which is 2012, which is currently as we stand. So, I mean, I don't know. Uh, in Egypt, I think they were. I don't know if the. I think the U.S. were reluctant. Uh, to involve in what's happening. And I don't think they have much of, of saying in what's happening there. But, you know, we might disagree. But I just hope that something will be done for Syria. Here's a, a question for both of you dealing with Muslim opinion of the U.S. Um, how is the American conservative political bashing of Islam during the elections, and not only elections, uh, how is that affecting Muslim opinion in the I don't know. I, I feel it's. I take that for granted. When I listen to the the, uh, the presidential uh, debate or the in in a campaign uh, talking positively about Israel, I take that for granted. That I, th I feel that they have to do it all the time. Uh, uh, they, they always step out of line to prove that they are supportive of Israel. So really, I do not look for that. I don't see news there. It doesn't surprise me. Uh, when I watched the presidential debate, I was looking for something about Syria, big about Syria, not about uh, uh, Israel, because I, I would expect both of them will to be totally supportive of Israel. So really, it doesn't really affect, uh, affect that much. Of course, our radicals, love your radicals and they will look yeah they, they do look for some serious bashing of islam by uh, a certain radical individuals in to import it to our part of the world and inflame it so it will be the the the, the topic for the next administration and uh, the call to burn the next american embassy so somehow your radicals and our radicals this synchronize together and they help each other and also I think the Arab world and the Muslim world has to understand that America is 300 million people when you have one priest from Florida who has 24 followers and who goes and burn the Quran they said oh look at America they all they hate us they burn in the Quran they, they you know disgrace in Islam etc I mean you cannot first of all as, as I, for the uh, reasons I mentioned before about the freedom of expression and this guy can burn the Quran and can burn the American flag and can burn the Bible and nobody can do anything to him but he doesn't represent the United States he does not represent the values of the United States or the government, or the majority of the people. As Jamal said, there are radicals on each side, and these radicals feed each other. They just love it when you have somebody like him burning the Quran and people in, hearing him in Cairo or Kabul or Jordan, whatever, and they just respond um, equally the same, and sadly, sometimes violently, and in the process, innocent people die. But then there's always the question about how much coverage should the American media give to uh, Pastor Jones or someone like him? 
Uh, I have a question that I'd like you both to talk to talk about. Uh, Nadia, you said that you've just come back from Turkey. Uh, you were speaking with the Syrian activists, and that over and over you heard them asking you, "Where is the U.S. leadership?" Would you like to talk about that a bit more, please? Well, I think Foreign Policy magazine answered this question, and they said the uh, the current administration policy towards Syria is an anxious thumb twiddling, which is basically just hoping that the regime will crumble from within that the war has been costing Bashar al-Assad a uh, billion dollar a month, and then hopefully that by, they think that by next year maybe, um, you know, he cannot afford to, uh, to continue, although he has friends in the region, we know them, uh, they will supply him with whatever he needs. Um, I, I think I, I, unless there is a change in the, in the military field, I don't think the war can be won, because so far, the Syrian government and President Assad is unable to quash the, uh, the, the rebels, and the rebels are unable to overthrow the regime. So something needs to, to happen. Today, actually, in the Washington Post, there was an article written by a, a French scholar calling again for the free zone, uh, no-fly zone, and basically that will be the safety for most uh, Syrians to go to. Um, uh, I mean, again, I mean, as a journalist, I'm not a politician and I'm not a political activist, but um, um, as a reporter, I'm just saying what I heard from people, from activists, who believe, basically, that the world has abandoned them to their fate, that the, I interviewed quite a few people and they call themselves the Free Syrian Army, and when I talk to the guys, they turn out to be a carpenter and a guy who had a grocery shop and they were telling me they were forced to carry arms because the village were attacked by air and the, the wife was killed, the mother was killed, the younger brother is missing. So they were just only citizens who found themselves in a war situation. And uh, again, I believe as a, as a person, as a mother, that we all have a moral obligation to stop killing anywhere in the world, whether it's in, in Burma or in Syria or elsewhere. If this country believes in the true values that it was established upon, which is freedom and justice and democracy and human rights, it should apply equally to everyone. And I think we heard this phrase, never again, and we always see people dying in their thousands. And I don't know what is the number that we have to reach before something can be done in Syria. I find the, not only the American's administration position about Syria doesn't add up, but also the position of my country, Saudi Arabia, of Turkey doesn't add up. It is, the, the numbers, the logic says it will serve the interests of America, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey to push the regime that is so weak of the edge uh, and ease in the misery of the Syrian people and start a new Middle East. That will work much better for uh, the region, for America, for our interest uh, in, to, in our war against uh, Iran. Uh, it, it, it all adds up to Bushra, uh, Bashar of the edge. Bashar is so stretched, so weak, and compared to the amount of money the Americans spend in Iraq, $1.6 trillion, uh, an operation in Syria will be cheaper than an operation in Libya. Uh, but he just doesn't, the, the only, the, the only ex, uh, uh, excuse I could have for the administration is the election. And I hope after the election they will do something about it. The, the information is available. When I look for information about the situation inside Syria in Time magazine or the New York Times, it is available, it is accurate, it is good. Uh, and, and, and it shows that, for, for example, many American politicians talk about uh, finding the right people or the, uh, the, the moderate forces in, uh, in, 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 Syria. In, in Syria. 
they just need to check the, the latest articles about the various groups in Time magazine. It, it, a, a beautiful investigative report. It did not come from the CIA. An excellent reporter illustrated exactly who is who in Syria, and he proved that the, the majority, the 90% majority of the fighters in Syria, they are mainstream, they hate Al-Qaeda, they even fight Al-Qaeda. So it just puzzled me why Americans official don't have that picture clear. Maybe they have it clear, but they just want an excuse why we are not supporting the Syrian uh, re revolution. But I'm not only blaming the American administration. I'm also blame, blaming my government, blaming the Turkish government. We, the Arabs, always demand of the Americans to do something about Syria while we are not, do we, we are not doing much about Syria. We, the Saudis, the Qataris, we are not doing enough uh, for Syria to end up the misery of the Syrian people and, 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 and help that revolution to reach its game. Its game. Just a, a real quick question here. Um, localism is king. How is the local media forming up in countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, Libya, and Tunisia? In Saudi Arabia, uh, most newspapers have switched from pan-Arab issues to local issues at their front pages way back something like, what, 10 years ago, I began to notice that. Uh, but the effect of that will be felt more on a news channel, because news channel, they're not like print media, they pass borders and Al-Arabiya or Al-Arab can be watched all over the Arab world. But the only constraint is the time. Now, Al-Jazeera and Al-Arabiya are experimenting with a localism. Uh, they have certain uh, hours for the Egyptian market. The, the Al Jazeera has a certain hour for the North African market. But what hasn't been successful yet is to bring the ad revenue. Maybe they have audience, but they don't have the ad revenue. Uh, so it is a very interesting time. If I was a professor of media uh, and communication, I will monitor those experiments uh, that is taking place. Uh, can Al-Arabiya secure a position and maintain it even if some Egyptian entrepreneur uh, launched uh, the first 24-hour uh, Egyptian news channel? Can they maintain it? Uh, I don't know. But it, it's something Al-Arabiya, Al-Jazeera, they are in a better position to broadcast news even from Egypt compared to local Egyptian channels. Local Egyptian channels, they find the easier way of talk shows. The Egyptian airwaves are full with talk shows, lots of talk shows. Uh, you, you, you can choose something like at least 10 talk shows every night. But uh, a, a local reporter who, who report on an incident from Mbaba, that doesn't exist yet. But I'm sure eventually, it's, it's, it, it, it will happen. Uh, somebody will pick up the idea, and they will start some kind of a news channel in Egypt, another probably news hours in Tunisia, and, a news, and I'm talking about local channels. But right now, the only channels who are experimenting with that are, are Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya, and I hope Al Arab will do the same, the same thing too. 
Yeah, I think I just add something. All news is, is local and all politics is local. And I think something can be learned from the American media. If you, if you watch NBC or ABC or, or any of that channels, they have general news, but then they go local. So if you live in, in New York, you, you hear the weather in New York or they hear what's happening, the guy in Mbaba, equivalent to the guy in Mbaba, what's happening to him. And if you live in Washington, you have that local news. So I think the Arab media can experiment in that as they have broadcast generally to pan-Arabs, and then on localized news, they can go to the region. And to Dr. Anthony, we will give the last question of the last session on the last day at the last panel of this conference. Can I just before let's add one little thing, sure. which is last thing, which is my wish. And my wish is hopefully one day we will establish something equivalent to NPR radio in the Arab world, which is from the people to the people. So we have contributions. So if you guys are going to do, donate a dollar or 10 million, I don't think 10 million, but at least a dollar or 10, that would be great because the whole idea is we'll be free from everything, advertisement, governments, uh, influential people, business people, and it will be from us to you and vice versa. And this is how we, 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 we provide a vital uh, service to everyone. Thank you. Well, it's it following on that that Miss uh, Bill Bassey Bill Bassey made a spirited uh, call for um, objectivity amongst uh, journalists and media representatives. Uh, but early in the day, in the session on Palestine that was chaired by Alison Weir, uh, she made reference to um, the fact that uh, the reporting by and of the Associated Press that is uh, appearing in most American um, newspapers without a, an individual byline other than just AP uh, is uh, filtered and uh, often censored uh, in Israel uh, because it has to be routed through Israel even if the report for AP is filed in, in Egypt or, or, or Libya or Iraq or wherever. How do you get around this aspect if you are as objective as possible, but you see your objectivity not even included in the report, or it's uh, shaded, or it's watered down, and its main points are vitiated uh, uh, through matters over which you have no control and even less influence? Either one of you. Oh, want I'm to sorry. That? I wanted to. <laughs> no, it's you. I'm sorry, I thought that was the last uh, question. No, you go ahead. I, I, I talk too no, much. No, <laughs> that's a tough question. Sorry, can you just um, phrase it again one more time? Yeah, how, do, how, how do you keep your professionalism, your drive, your standards, your enthusiasm, your fervor, your work, uh, a holic aspect uh, in uh, objectivity and being clinical and dispassionate as you can be? And you're reporting only to see it um, in the, the American case mm. uh, related to Associated Press, which most newspapers subscribe to, uh, that it, uh, it takes is full of, de full of deletions of your objectivity right. or shadings or watering down or vitiating or even uh, misinterpreting your objectivity. Uh, how do you deal with that? Well, and if you complain, what are the consequences? <laughs> Well, it's tough. I mean, one thing that journalists do is not just they believe in the things that they do, but they like to see their names. So if you're writing a story and you work really hard on it, you want to see a byline. So the worst could happen is they just take it away, they change it. We always complain, and I used to work with AFP in the old days, 
that you know the editors sit in wherever they sit and they change it because they have nothing else to do you know because you are on the field and they wanted to put an imprint so they change your story and you will be happiest when they don't you know filter it or, or change anything or alter anything um, in, in, in the Israeli Palestinian question in particular is, is really tough because um, you know as, as you said uh, in general this country is very pro-Israel in, in, on every level in the Congress and administration and the policies so you know you take it for a fact that uh, even the reporting is going to be with very few exceptions very few exceptions that generally is going to be uh, favoring Israel in, uh, at the expense of the Palestinians so um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's really tough, and I always say maintain your objectivity, trying to raise, to raise your voice, um, it, trying to convince as many people as you can, your editors, whatever. But the most important thing, instead of taking it from the agencies, have a correspondent on the ground. So your correspondent can tell you the story of what's happening. And big newspapers like New York Times and the Washington Post, in my time, uh, 20 years ago, during the first intifada, foreign reporters would never even venture to Gaza. They will use, um, you know, foreign correspondent coming there and leaving. But now they actually hire Palestinians because all of a sudden, this is why always credibility is important, is, is, is paramount. So I always say to young reporter, if three people die in front of you, it's not a massacre. But it's good enough to talk about every individual and to give them a name and to tell their stories and to talk about their families. So stay credible and stay objective as much as you can. It's, it's very, most of the times it's really tough and it's a struggle. And it's a challenge for even anybody who has been covering things for 20 years. That was the case for me in southern Sudan, for example, during the famine, when you see a mother who has to sacrifice one of her children so the weaker one can die and the stronger one can live. I mean, imagine a story like this you have to cover. But in general, I mean, in all conflict zones, whether it's in, in Palestine, whether it was in Bosnia, whether it's in Syria now, whether it's in Burma, everywhere, it is it's very tough for a journalist to tell a story and to stay objective and somebody else not basically changing it. And struggle for us even now. I mean, for me as a reporter, when I put my story on NBC, we have to do one minute and 20 seconds. Sometimes like one, 60 se one minute and 40 seconds is too long. How can you tell a story that, you know, in, in that short of a time? And sometimes they take a sound bite that's really important to the story. So it is something we have to take uh, as reporters that not everything is the way we want it. But we struggle to, to convince our editors. And one last thing, since Jamal has given me the platform, talking about women and the glass ceilings, is I think it's very important that sometimes you have these reporters who worked in the field for so long that they can go back to headquarters, and they're the ones who, who basically become the editors. So the measure for women's success in the Arab media is not how many anchors you have and how many liberal and modern they are, and whether with a scarf or without a scarf, but once you have that woman who's in the editorial newsroom who makes that decision, and you have that woman who's the general manager of a station, and you have the woman who's the head of HR, this is the real measurement for, for all of us Arab women to make sure that we have another crack in the glass ceiling. Jamal? It is, as Mrs. Balbisi put it, it is really tough. It is tough for us reporters to see our uh, story being uh, rewritten or uh, uh, edited. Uh, We'll just have to live and let the other live and move on sometime and make a story about it to till later. And that's what I'm going to do. I remember in 1992, I had a similar situation 
when I, I was in Algeria, I interviewed the judge who was going to try the leaders of the FIS, uh, the Islamic party that won the elections of 1990, uh, 91, and they were later put into prison. So the judge told me uh, the trial was uh, a couple of days later, but the judge trusted me enough as a reporter and told me that we're going to sentence both of them to 12 years. And the trial did not take place yet. So I sent the story to my paper, Al-Hayat, uh, that uh, Abbasi Madani and Ali Balhaj will be sentenced to 12 years, and the judge uh, uh, said that. Uh, at that time, we, uh, we, we used to file through faxes. And uh, the fax was taken from me to the back room in the hotel. Of course, God knows who is there. So somehow the fax reached the paper, but later on in the day, somebody from this, the Algerian government called the managing editor in, in London and told him, please remove the part about the 12 years because it will hurt our credibility and it will cause us difficulties here in, in Algeria. I learned later when I saw the story that, the, that, that, that my scoop was taken away. And I got really angry, but I, you know, being in, in Algeria, uh, which was under siege at that time and the army has taken over, it wasn't really a problem for me to complain, uh, so I just let it go and move on. But that is uh, the kind of things we reporters can encounter sometime. Thank you all very much, uh, Nadia and Jamal. That was very interesting. Thank you all for having the tenacity of staying to the very end. Yes. It obviously <laughs> paid off with uh, the significant exchange of ideas from the media. And finally, in closing, we would like Dr. Anthony to close the final session of this conference.